Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that would like to remind us all that a man who catches a fly with chopsticks can accomplish anything. He is the captain. I'm just like you. The only difference is, is when my pants are on, I make gold records. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, I am very happy to say that we are drinking Rising Haze IPA by the brilliant folks over at Highland Brewing in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina. This IPA is tropical and smooth. It's naturally hazy with vibrant and juicy notes of citrus, pineapple, and apricots garage grade. I love this beer, Captain. Here we go. Five out of five bottle caps. And we would like to give some praise to some of our good friends first up a big cheers and thank you to team highland in Asheville. and let's go north of the border and give a cheers to jennifer in harrow ontario canada and a big shout out to courtney t in kansas city missouri next up a cheers to caitlin d i'm guessing she's in vermont captain because she's saying drink some vermont beer specifically the alchemist that's by Hetty Topper. I gave it four and three quarter bottle caps. Caitlin, if you're on there, please follow me on Untapped and we can pretend to be drinking beers together. And you always give me all the easy ones. <laughs> Heather and <laughs> Helena. And Helena. Alabama. Gotta Alabama. beat Alabama. That's good enough. Next up, we have Devon, Cody, and Bell, Missouri. And last but certainly not least, we have Suzanne. In McHenry, Illinois, she's a longtime listener and listened to the captain on the Peripheral podcast. That would have been way back in 2018. So it's a very depressing episode. So tune into that. Yeah. So cheers to everyone, and thank you for contributing to this week's beer fund. And for all of our old episodes, check us out exclusively on the Stitcher app. And we have a bonus show called Off the Record. So 
If you need more garage in your earbuds, go check out the Stitcher app. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. A lust murder is one of the most heinous crimes committed by man. While not a common occurrence, it is one which frightens and arouses the public, as does no other crime. Of primary concern are those factors which differentiate the lust murder from the more common sadistic homicide. Physical evidence present at the scene may assist in determining the responsible individual or individuals, and possible personality characteristics of the murderer. The material presented is not applicable to all such crimes and perpetrators, but rather the majority. The data presented is based upon examination of case reports, interviews with investigative personnel, and a careful review of the literature. The lust murder is unique and distinguished from the sadistic homicide by the involvement of a mutilating attack or displacement of the breast, rectum, or genitals. Further, while there are always exceptions, basically two types of individuals commit the lust murder. These individuals are labeled as organized non-social and disorganized asocial personalities. The lust murder is premeditated in the obsessive fantasies of the perpetrator. Yet the killer may act on spur of the moment when the opportunity presents itself. That is to say, the murderer has precisely planned the crimes in his fantasies, but has not consciously decided to act out those fantasies until the moment of the crime. Consequently, the victim is typically unknown to the killer. The lust murder is committed in a brutally sadistic manner. While the victim may be either male or female, the crime is predominantly heterosexual and intraracial in nature. The victim's body exhibits gross mutilation and may have been subjected to excessive stabbing or slashing with a sharp instrument. The victim's death typically occurs shortly following the abduction or attack, and the mutilation that takes place follows death. Seldom will the lust murderer use a firearm to kill, for he experiences too little psychosexual gratification with such an impersonal weapon. Most frequently, death results from strangulation, blunt force, or the use of a pointed, sharp instrument. The investigator may find that the victim has been bitten on the breast, buttocks, neck, abdomen, thighs, or genitals. Limb or breast amputation, or in some instances total dissection, may have taken place. 
frequently. The murderer will take a souvenir, normally an object or an article of clothing belonging to the victim, but occasionally it will be a more personal reminder of the encounter, a finger, a lock of hair, or a part of the body with sexual association. The souvenir is taken to enable the murderer to relive the scene in later fantasies. The killer here is acting out his fantasy, and complete possession of the victim is part of that fantasy. The killer may be compelled to return to the scene. What set of circumstances create the individual who becomes the lust murderer? It is generally accepted that the foundation of the personality is formed within the first few years of life. While extreme stress, frequent narcotic use, or alcohol abuse can cause personality disorganization in later life, it is the early years that are critical to the personality structure and development. Seldom does the lust murder come from an environment of love and understanding. It is more likely that he was an abused or neglected child who experienced a great deal of conflict in his early life and was unable to develop and use adequate coping devices. Had he been able to do so, he would have withstood the stresses placed on him and developed normally in childhood. The lust murderer is premeditated in obsessive fantasies. Fantasy provides them an avenue of escape from a world of hate and rejection. Dr. James Reinhardt, in his book Sex Perversions and Sex Crimes, has written, A study of these cases almost invariably reveals a long struggle against the forward thrust. By fantasy, the murderer attempts to wall himself in against the fatal act while at the same time gratifying the compulsive psychic demands in the development and use of fantasy. These sadistic fantasies seem always to have preceded the brutal act of lust murder. These fantasies take on all sorts of grotesque and cruel forms. The pervert on this level of degeneracy may resort to pornographic pictures grotesque and cruel literary episodes out of which he weaves fantasies. On these, his imagination dwells until he loses all contact with reality, only to find himself suddenly impelled to carry his fantasies into the world of actuality. This is done apparently by drawing human objects into the fantasy. The victim may represent something he desires sexually, but is unable to approach. This is True Crime Garage, and this is The Slayer's Book of Death.
What I just read to you, Captain, was from the April 1980, Volume 49, Number 4, FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin. Hmm. This is a law enforcement bulletin from the FBI that goes out to inform and educate law enforcement agencies and other departments within the FBI. It's my favorite volume. That's right. (laughs) It's at the top of the stack on your your collector's Mm -hmm. batch that you have of all of the FBI bulletins. I don't know if this is still a current thing, to be honest with you, but um, I had often read in other books where Roy Hazelwood and John Douglas cited this bulletin and they would reference this bulletin, the article that they wrote for the April 1980 edition. I'd never read the full article itself and I was lucky enough to find it and I wanted to include what is my own summary, a summarized version of that article because it's many pages long and it goes off into a few different areas that are not so important for our case today. But in general, Captain, the bulletin will discuss things like training, administration, operations, community relations, and all sort of things from fighting crime to just the day-to-day operations of running any public service agency. They, of course, include info about who is wanted by the FBI and crime trends. In this release, they have a great section dedicated to crime problems, what they label as crime problems, and a lengthy and brilliant article put together by, of course, two of the garage's favorites and two of the FBI's finest, Roy Hazelwood and John Douglas. Again, that was my summarized version, and I won't go into all of the reasons why it was summarized, but again, some of it's just not important to what we will be discussing today. A lot of it focuses on the differences between what they were calling the organized non-social and disorganized asocial personalities of these types of killers. I specifically left those parts out because that was 1980. And since then, we have learned that these same profilers and others agree that they're is also what is called a mixed offender, one who exhibits both organized and disorganized criminal traits. And then to quote Douglas's 1997 book, Journey into Darkness, on page 240, Douglas writes in this article, meaning the FBI bulletin article that we just read, we, Douglas and Hazelwood, divided lust murderers into two broad categories, organized non-social and disorganized asocial, though we don't use the non-social and asocial terms much any longer. What that means, Captain, is not so much that they do not apply anymore, but they still apply however they apply differently than once thought back in the late 70s and 1980 when the article came out. We have learned, obviously, so much more about lust murderers and serial offenders and killers since then. The purpose of reading that summary in the trailer, one is... It's educational, and if we are not learning along the way in this garage journey, well, then we are just getting dumber, and I personally cannot afford for that to happen. That's the path I'm on, my friend. (laughs) But two, because it's very much appropriate for this week's case. So if you have your Speedo on, Mr. Captain, let's dive in, shall we? On Thursday, July 29th, 1993, our case this week starts off in Ellis County, Texas, Now, due to the location of this week's case, we are likely going to reference a lot of 
cases that the garage has covered in the past. If you want to listen to those episodes, very obviously you get the free Stitcher app. And I must say, Captain, some of our best work, I believe, has been conducted in the great state of Texas. People outside of Texas may not recognize this area by name, but they will by location. Ellis County is directly south of Dallas, Texas. We covered the strangely still unsolved murder of Missy Beavers. That homicide took place in the city of Midlothian, which is in the mid the northwest corner of Ellis County. Mm-hmm. And longtime listeners of The Garage will remember the controversial case of Cameron Todd Willingham, the trial by fire case that took place in Corsicana, Texas, which is south of Ellis County. Now, Interstate 45 runs from Dallas, Texas, through Ellis County, then down through Houston and all the way to Galveston. And I-45 is believed by many to have a direct connection to some of the Texas Killing Fields cases. So our listeners know this area. They're familiar. This Thursday was a hot and humid one. One can only imagine the hot Texas summer in late July. A road crew was out doing some work. Now that afternoon, one of the workers spots something strange off in the brush some distance away and he points it out to one of his fellow workers. So the two go to investigate as they're getting closer. One of the men says, I think we might be seeing a person. And then he says, I think it might be a woman. As they got closer, there was a horrific smell. Sure enough, it was a body, a dead nude female lying partially on her back. One of the workers stays with the body. The other man ran for a vehicle so that they could go and get some help. The worker went to the nearest town, this is Talico, and notified the authorities. Now, we have the Ellis County Sheriff's Department on the scene. Here is what they found. It was, in fact, the nude body of a female, but because of bloating and the Texas heat, It was difficult to determine on site just about how long the body had been there. Adding to that, the body was missing both the head and hands. They had been removed and the body was covered in cuts. So deputies and detectives searched the immediate area. Now, of course, they are looking for clues and evidence, but in this situation, unfortunately, they are also looking for the female's clothing and the missing body parts. Right, but they would notice the the head and hands immediately, but wasn't also her uh, nipples cut off and and her genitalia was mutilated? There was a good deal of mutilation that was very obvious to the detectives on the scene that day. Hmm. Now, during their search, they have an incredibly shocking find. The reports vary here, Captain, on the distance Most state 100 yards away, so like a football field distance away. Right. One report says more than 200 yards away, but regardless, what they find is another body. This is the body of a young man. The workers were working near the Smith Creek Bridge. The female body was located in some brush and brambles off of this gravel road in this rural location. So an area not well-traveled, a road not used often, right? 
the male boy was found again some distance away, but the body was partially in the creek on the creek bank, somewhat near the bridge. Is his body mutilated? That's what's that's what's so strange here, Captain. We have all of this incredible amounts of horrific mutilation done to the female body, and it does not appear that there was any done to the male body. So does that point to the idea that he was just in the way? He was a casualty. She was she was technically this killer's hunt. Well, I, I think that it I think that they probably have a lot of initial suspicions and I don't know what they are, but I think we can go through that somewhat here because what we're really looking at is two very different crime scenes from one another, right? We already discussed the female found lying partially on her back, severed head and hands, Mm -hmm. completely nude and covered in cuts. The male victim very quickly identified as no older than 15, you know, we don't have the same amount of mutilation going on to this victim. So we can visually take a look and go, this is a young male. And immediately again, they're saying no older than 15 was lying face down. Now he's completely clothed and no mutilation, no dismemberment. Yeah. Shot twice in the head and that's it. So the missing body parts were not found during the detectives searches of this area. The Dallas medical examiner's office determined that the boy was shot twice in the head, as you said. So we are not talking about a murder suicide here. Although we have seen strange cases where there are two shots in a suicide, but it was very quickly determined that we are looking for a, we're looking at a murder, murder, a double homicide. Yeah. Well, and you could look at the hands as a, that's a identification marker. So did the killer take these hands to, so you could, it would be harder for you to identify her. Um, and then obviously the head, but we've seen with Dahmer and maybe, you know, of other killers that, that use the head as a, a trophy. Uh, Bundy was known to take some heads as well. And he used them for sexual gratification purposes, which is a whole nother disgusting topic. Um, the male was shot with a 22 caliber gun captain. The female was shot as well in the back with what they could only determine to be a similar caliber weapon. So that makes you wonder, do we not find, they must've found different evidence on the male victim than on the female to not be able to specifically state the caliber of the gun used on the female victim. But she had been stabbed several times as well. The head was removed at the base of the neck with either a large hunting knife or an axe or possibly a hatchet. This is what the medical examiner's office is saying. So usually, Captain, when we are saying things like this, we think these were possibly the weapons used. That would usually indicate that we are not talking about something being removed with surgical precision. Right. There were also cuts along all over the body and she had extensive damage and wounds to her body. The abdomen had been cut open with a large cut down the center, almost like a, like a Y cut. Like you would typically see on a body once an autopsy had been performed. 
one, it's possible that this killer is just using one instrument, using one knife, and that's it. Possibly, yeah. And we'll get into some of the psychological weird stuff of this, and that's why we wanted that intro into this case where we have some of the experts telling us a little bit more about this lust murderer. So usually, and I'm sorry that we didn't tell you in advance that you should put down your chicken salad sandwich and wait to eat it. This is going to be a tough to listen to gross couple of episodes. And I I mean, I, I apologize, but this is the, this is the case that we were asked to cover by many listeners this week. So usually in this situation here, Captain, a killer will do this. I'm talking about the cuts on the abdomen. When attempting to successfully disembowel a victim. Now, there were cuts and mutilations done to a lot of the body, but specifically to the thighs, breast, and genital areas. The male body showed no signs of any of this mutilation at all that was seen on the female body. The male was killed very quickly, and it's likely, though we can't say for certain because of the state of the female body, it is likely that she died quickly as well. Yeah, just it, to me, it the evidence points that he's just the casualty mm-hmm. to, to get to her. So we have the cuts, we have the mutilation. Well, it was obvious that the killer, and these aren't my words, I'm quoting here, stayed with the body for quite some time in reference to the female victim. So we don't know who these victims are and we want to get a time of death or at least an approximate time of death. So this won't be so much for identification purposes. This is more to cross check this approximate time of death against any alibis of potential suspects, especially if we end up in a situation where we have more than one suspect and spoiler alert we will before we get into time of death because the victim was found nude it is believed that this was obviously a sex crime but the medical examiner could find no real signs of sexual assault on the body or signs of this at the scene where the body was found also decomposition made it impossible to definitively state this finding Another weird thing was there was a lot of bruising around the place where the hands had been severed. And this suggested to the medical examiner and the investigators of the possible use of handcuffs on the female victim. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. 
IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners, get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. 
Head to factormeals.com slash true crime garage 50 and use code true crime garage five zero to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code true crime garage 50 at factormeals.com slash true crime garage five zero to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And our speedos. We be back. Cheers, cheers. to you, Captain. It was, it was like nobody wanted to be the first one to cheers. You che- hey, well, it's hot outside. It's cold in the garage. I'm we're wearing, a little bashful in our speedos. Yeah, I got on my. I, not only do I have on my speedo, but I have my mighty Van Halen your T-shirt coat. on as well. So it's a good, it's a good day in the garage. Put some pants on. The medical examiner found fly larva on both bodies what they will do is they're going to use this fly larva to help determine the approximate time of death because as investigators we have a lot of questions here right it looks like they were quite thorough with this the medical examiner came to the conclusion but also enlisted the help of an expert in this specific area so getting the second opinion This was provided by a forensic entomologist in Illinois. The two concluded the following. The estimated time of death of both victims was about two days prior, between the evening of July 26th and the early morning of July 27th. But we also have some major questions here for the detectives to work out. And one that you kept going to, but I wasn't ready to get to just yet, Captain, was why remove the head and hands? Well, the hands could be for a number of reasons, but I, like I said before, I think it'd be more so to stop you from identifying the body. Correct, and I believe that that was the initial thought of the the detectives on the scene, right? But, right, but this to me seems like a very uh, confused scene, I don't or disorganized scene because you have two victims. You take the hands of one victim, you leave the hands of the other victim. Well, now that if you can properly identify the male victim, we're going to have a better idea of who the female victim is. It doesn't seem like for for the suspicion of the medical examiner to say that it is obvious that the killer stayed with the body of the female victim. So we know that there was time spent at the crime scene that was not necessary to the killing of both of these victims. However, the killer or killers apparently used that time to, for excitement purposes, rather than for preventing the detectives from figuring out what happened here is what it looks like to me, because typically removing the head and hands, as you said, is to prevent identification of the victim. Now, The weird thing here is it's 1993, so we're in that weird period of time where DNA is starting to come about, and so the killer obviously didn't know if that was their intention, did not know that that DNA was a possibility for identifying the victim. Right. But to go into that a little deeper, okay, 
So we've talked about this plenty of times on, on the show. The more effort to conceal a body or conceal the identity of a victim often indicates that there's some type of personal relationship with the victim, right? If usually the killer is trying to conceal himself in a way because he might be the most obvious person to have killed the victim could be a boyfriend could be a husband could be hey we went around town asking anybody if anybody wanted to hurt mary jane and three people told us bob smith wants to do it right so he doesn't want the victim to be identified but then there's also some other situations that work in that manner as well. You could have a situation where the victim is not from the area that the victim was brought to the dump site from another location, usually far away and left there. And if law enforcement can't identify the body, then they don't know that Jane Doe from California or everyone thought, you know, everyone already thought that she ran away. Uh, turns out she was a murder victim, right? but we can't identify her or, Janice Doe from Ohio, who was abducted three weeks ago, is actually our victim found in Ellis County, Texas. But then, as you point out, you find another body, and we can deduce from the two victims sharing the approximate time of death that they were placed at about the same time. And there was no dismemberment of the male victim. Yeah, let the deducing begin. So no attempt to conceal this victim's identity. So the dismemberment, and then compound that, with all of the other mutilation, it seems like the motive for this was simply completely different. You know, they searched the area and the body parts were not found. So it wasn't done simply for fun and pardon me for saying so, but the mutilation appears to have been done for excitement purposes. For some of these killers, the mutilation itself, the mutilation of the victim to them is the sexual act that they were fantasizing about. For some, it's what investigators often refer to as playing with or examining the body that really happens. It's not so much sexual. It's more of a fascination. They want to examine the body, play with it. And then for others, and a lot of times you see this mixed in with the sexual aspect or both. Well, don't take this the wrong way. I don't want to have it come off insensitive, but it's, it's kind of the idea of opening up a radio, for example, like you, you have a radio and you as a kid and you go, well, how does this work? What are all the pieces here? Right. Or sometimes when a kid gets an instrument, like a guitar or something, okay, I I see the neck, I see the strings. Where are the wires? Mm -hmm. Oh, there's just these screws. Let me undo that. And so it's almost like, um, like you said, I mean, so, but, but what you're stating is that there's a sexual gratification from playing with the body. Well, there can be. And then again, there's other times like you just stated where they're fascinated with the body and want to take it apart and examine it. It, it, it. Again, it sounds insensitive to say this, but this is some of the science behind the psychology of some of these horrible monsters that perform acts like this, that we are talking about today. There are reasons why the FBI and people study these types of of horrific murderers so that they can get some kind of general understanding for why they do what they do and hope to be able to catch them faster. Uh The other thing, too, with this type of mutilation, and I've seen this in several cases 
before is that sometimes when there's a lot of hate and rage built up in somebody in a killer that sometimes not only do they want to kill a specific person or specific victim, they want to destroy them and they want to destroy them in appearance. They want their body to not be recognizable when anybody finds it. They don't care that it's being found. In fact, they likely want the body to be found. They want it to be found in that horrific manner because their goal was to not just kill that person, but destroy that person. And it could be the person is a surrogate for somebody else. Yeah. But maybe it's a sub, you know, like a conscious subconscious type thing where it's like, so, so consciously you're destroying the body because you feel like there's something broken or destroyed inside you or somebody destroyed that in you. Right. Or subconsciously you could do that. Yeah, but also maybe that you're leaving the body behind because subconsciously or I guess consciously you want you want them to find that body because that's like a note. It's almost like a note saying I was hurt, I was broken, I was all these things. Now come find me. Or this is what I'm capable of. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be a little bit of both. Or it could be not thought out at well at all. And right. but what I do find that's interesting, one thing that we kept really going to time and time again in the trailer was the thought of a lot of times these killers fantasize about violence. They fantasize about killing. And they've actually thought about it and premeditated what they want to do for a long period of time, sometimes years, sometimes a lifetime. And then when an opportunity presents itself. They've not premeditated that they're going to kill that person on that day at that time. It's just, this is what I've always wanted to do. Here's my opportunity. Well, it's amazing how different from an actual human these animals are. Right. These monsters are because I I remember watching it and it was a bad Dahmer film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was this whole notion that he, he had this fantasy of, of laying next to an individual. And I remember thinking at the time, that's not a bad thing. I, I'm sure at some point when I was, you know, 12 years old, I thought, oh, I wonder what it'd be like to lay next to a girl. So my initial thought was, oh, well, he, maybe he is just homosexual and wants to lay next to a, a man. There's nothing wrong with that until you find out that he wants that individual to be unconscious and then or you, dead. Yeah. And then you go, Whoa, that's, that's a whole different level here. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't even, I couldn't even begin to understand how that would just pop up into an individual's head. I think it works differently for everyone. For every single yeah. One I, of them. Yeah, yeah. I think that some it's, it's always been there and some it's a, a morphing into that over a period of time. And there's the psychology behind that is typically that the, the offender often feels rejected or that they don't belong. They don't fit in and that they could never please so that on some kind of level, they feel better in an intimate setting to be with somebody that is unconscious or, or already dead because they cannot judge them. There's, there's a lot that goes into it. And then really the other part of this too, in our case here, captain is 
is it possible that the killer took these items as a souvenir, took the clothing, took the missing remains as some kind of weird sick souvenir? Now, detectives did catch a huge break, okay? Remember, the boy was fully clothed. Well, in one of the boy's pockets, they find a wallet. Inside the wallet is a library card. That's right, a good old-fashioned library card. The name on the card was James, with the middle initial B, last name King. James B. King. Now, with a lead and a name that could belong to the victim or even maybe the suspect or who knows, but we have to see where this goes. So the detectives start calling around to other police departments. So captain, there is a small town about 15 miles away from our crime scene named Garrett. They learn from the officers in Garrett that they recently took a missing persons report. Two teenage kids were missing a boy and a girl. The boy was Brian King. The girl was his stepsister. The report was filed by the parents. So the detectives take the library card and a photo of the male victim, and they go to the home of the missing teenagers. There, detectives speak with the father of Brian King. They very quickly learn that Brian's real name is James Brian King. Okay, so the missing persons report says Brian King. They have this library card of James King, but they figure out the boy's real name is James Brian King. Same as on the library card, James B. King. Right. The boy went by the name Brian. Now, everyone is fearing that the female victim is likely Brian's stepsister, Christina Ann Benjamin. The photo of the male victim is shown to the father of the missing kids. Oh. And he confirms that the male victim is, in fact, his 14-year-old son, Brian. And no one knows for sure, but again, the female victim, law enforcement, is now working on the theory that she, that that victim is the stepsister, Christina, who is age 13. Right. So who would want to kill a couple of teenagers? Well, the missing persons report will provide another good lead in this case. Brian's father said that on the night of the kid's disappearance, he woke up to see Brian talking to somebody in a tan sedan. So something wakes up James King. This was late, right around midnight. Right. Brian had asked if he could sleep outside, you know, summertime, do a little, do a little camp out in the yard. James goes over to the window after something wakes him up and sees Brian talking to someone. One report actually says talking to some people in a tan vehicle, which would imply that James saw more than one person in the vehicle. I don't have the actual police report, so I can't say for certain, but most reports say talking to some people or talking to someone, but everything says a tan sedan. Yeah. Now this is interesting. What's up with these? Killers and tan cars. Do they make? I don't see a lot of tan cars anymore. No, I mean Bundy had a tan Beetle. Right. So what? What a weird. I'd like me a nice flesh-colored. Yeah, Cadillac. Give me, give me a flesh-colored vehicle. Maybe that's the fascination. I don't Maybe know that's... if if I had kids, I would if I'd let them sleep outside. 
Because <laughs> I know when I was a kid, I, you, they put the tent outside, and then about midnight, oh, the parents are probably asleep. Let's go. Maybe toilet paper, maybe egg a house, you know, maybe uh, what do they call that ding dong ditch where you ring the doorbell and then you take off running. Mm-hmm. Um, just stupid stuff. And then eventually the cops would come and be like, put your hands up. But uh, but then, you know, you have, and, and Brian's young. I mean, he's 14 years old and talking to uh, somebody in a tan sedan. This is an interesting detail because it, it's a detail that has been debated over the years, whether it was more than one person in the vehicle or just a driver. One thing that I think might be a possible answer here is that Brian was talking to someone in the vehicle. The vehicle contains the driver of the car, whoever that is. It sounds like Brian's father, James, did not have a good, clean visual of the people in the car. I think there was two people in the car, but I think that possibly the second person was Brian's stepsister, Christina. Right. So here's what we learned. Christina was asleep inside the house. She, she shares a room with her little sister. Now, James and his wife obviously did not know that Brian was missing technically until the next morning. Right. He saw Brian talking with someone in a car and just assumed, hey, it's one of Brian's friends and that James went back to bed. The next morning, he first discovers Brian is gone and then discovers Christina is gone. The parents didn't phone this in right away because despite the kids being good kids and neither of them had ever done anything like this, you know, taking off in the middle of the night, they've never done this before. They don't call it in right away because of what James saw. The parents just assumed the two were out running around with some friends. This is also backed up because the little sister tells mom and dad the next day that around midnight, Brian, uh, came into the sister's bedroom, woke up Christina, telling her someone was outside. She should get up and sneak out. Uh-huh. The family believed that this sounded like something that was pre-arranged. With both kids gone that day, the parents spent the day calling people that knew either Brian or Christina or both, and of course driving around out conducting their own search for the two teenagers. When the kids were gone for a second night that morning, the parents notified the police. So now it looks like we have two teenagers sneaking out, meeting up with someone in a tan sedan. Right. The parents do not know who the vehicle belongs to. Of course, we should assume possibly an older kid here just based off of driving age. Yeah, and I, I don't mind the idea of assuming that maybe – Brian's sister's in the car, but it's it's very possible, especially at that that time of night. Uh, let's say a sixteen to seventeen year old kid with his license, he's driving his friend back home, mm-hmm. and they stop and he talks to Brian, and then he, hey, I'm gonna drop off my buddy. I'll be right back. The other interesting thing too is you're also working on the theory that likely whoever took them that night or got them to leave willingly that night, right. must know one or both of the teenagers. Yeah. the There was some hair that was found at the body dump site. So at the crime scene, deputies found several strands of blonde hair. Christina had long blonde hair. 
So kudos to the detective and the deputies who noticed and took this stuff into evidence. Because of these hairs, the detectives asked the parents if they could collect some of Christina's hair from the house and compare it to what was found, and they did. The parents also provided an x-ray to police. Christina, not long ago, had an accident at school, and she broke her foot. The parents gave the x-ray to police so they could compare this. Here's what they found. The x-ray proved to be a match. The unidentified female had suffered the same injury. So they were pretty certain to begin with already, but now they were they had proof that the body was that of missing Christina Benjamin. The hair is a bit of a different story. So they found possible hair evidence in more than one location at the two body recovery sites. Some of the blonde hair belonged to Christina and some of it did not. The hairs did not belong to Brian King either. So there is a chance the hair belongs to the killer. Right. So as far as leads go, it looks to me, Captain, like we are looking for the driver of a tan sedan who was out front at Brian and Christina's home around midnight just a couple days earlier, and this person may or may not have blonde hair. Well, just think about everybody in this case so far. I mean, think about the cops that have to show up at that scene and what they have to deal with. What yeah. they have to, what they now will have to mentally picture for the rest of their lives. I yeah. Know. Think about the two workers that were didn't sign up to be cops or detectives. Right. That were yeah. out. They signed up to work on roads. I work on roads and they find the body of the female victim and then they have to decide who's going to stay with the body while the other person goes and gets help and notifies the authorities. Well, and then the other thing that you have to wrap your head around a little bit as far as the parents go, as far as the detectives go, is you, you go, okay, well now we've, we've identified the two victims. Mm-hmm. We've got a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old, right? Mm-hmm. Brother and stepsister. Or sister and stepbrother, however you want to word it's it. It's right? the same thing. Same thing. Same difference. But then you go, well, we did see them possibly talking to somebody at night. And we're now putting this person in the realm, of the, the possibility of a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. We already know the outcome. We already know how sick and dangerous this person is. But now you're saying that it's possibly a teenager. I mean, that's that's a lot, to, I think, to deal with and wrap your head around. Well, you're right, because immediately now, if you're if you're thinking that one or both of the victims knew the perpetrator or the perpetrators... Right. That they would have been someone that ran in one or both of their circles and most likely putting them closer in age or similar in age to the victims. The thing here too, Captain, is it's really looking like your window of time is closing. That this is not just your best suspect because the tan vehicle was seen at their home around midnight on the 26th, but then we're going to cross check that with the approximate time of death. That's partly why that's so important. The approximate time of death is from that same time period, the evening of the 26th or the morning of the 27th. So we have a small window here. If this person in the tan sedan 
was not the killer, then they have a lot of explaining to do. And then we need to further our timeline past that person for our victims before they end up dead at that dump site. Right. Now, this next bit, Captain, is from true crime author Catherine Ramson. She is discussing the fact that local detectives consulted with profilers regarding these specific murders. She says, The profilers went on to describe this killer as organized, antisocial, and fitting the typical behavior profile of what they called a lust murderer. What excited him was torture and mutilation, and possibly even a bit of necrophilia. Such people were driven by violent fantasies, and when opportunity and tension crossed paths, the result was usually destructive. This person would abuse substances and would have a car and be fairly mobile. He would collect weapons and take souvenirs from the crime scene. He would also attend to media coverage and collect articles about his crimes. The motive was typically wrapped up in rejection, hostility towards society, and an erotic attraction toward violence. Thanks for listening. If you like the music, go to our website, click on the music page, and there's so much more to get to tomorrow. And if you don't like the music, go to our website and click on the music page. We just really want you if to If you do don't that. like the music, then go to the vlog and tell Nick all about it. Tell me all about it. Yes, that's right. Hey, we appreciate you stopping by our garage today. We got a lot more to get to tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.